about nature we're going to think about today. All right, uh, thank you, uh, well, for getting us started. Nature is a biblical subject because we live in it. Uh, we live in the world that God made, and we, I hope, appreciate the nature around us. Uh, we have lots of different kinds of nature. God made the world in a fantastic way or ways, and so I don't know about you, but wherever I've lived, I've liked it. I, as far as the, the world that God has made. Of course, I, as I say, I've never lived in Texas, so I can't, you know... <laughs> But whatever state I find myself in therewith to be content, Paul said. He never lived in Texas either. But uh, whether the plains or whether the mountains or whether the Midwest and the farmlands, wherever, you know, there's a lot of beautiful things. But, of course, uh, there is a lot of misunderstanding about it. And in these days where evolution is accepted as how nature came about, uh, we find ourselves uh, in a lot of battles over things like that. As a matter of fact, we live in an, we live in an age where, where we call it naturalism. Uh, and that, in the last 200 years, when modernism uh, has come into being, evolution and the rest, and science reigns as king, Theology is set aside, biblical things are set aside, and so for the last 200 years, naturalism has kind of been the king. If you want to explain where we come from, it has to be from an evolutionary point of view. If you look at nature, you don't look at it as having a creator. You just, you know, the wonderful things that we see in nature, and uh, maybe the best that lost people can do is appeal to Mother Nature, right? <laughs> that uh, we have Mother Nature. Or uh, in this last season we just went through, it seems that uh, Santa Claus has kind of taken the place of, of God as if uh, he's all-knowing and all-seeing and, and so forth. Um, I uh, have a file on nature, and I... I pulled out a lot of things and put them down. I hope it's not boring, but some things are pretty, uh, pretty interesting. You know, if, we, um, if, if you believed you were here and there was no God, there, if you could, I don't, it's hard for a Christian to put themselves in that mindset, but people live that way, you know? So there, there's no supernatural being. There's no God who controls. You're just in this world in, in the seasons of the world and the places uh, with its beauty, but also with its uh, uh, catastrophes, you know, what would life be to you? How, how would you think about it? A, a fellow that I like to read, his name William Lane Craig, and some years ago he wrote this book, Reasonable Faith, and I kept this, this quote. And I have a few things like this to read, but it's okay when you're, if you're listening to this uh, on tape, uh, whether I'm looking at you or not doesn't matter, right? But Craig said, uh, it is important to see, it is not just immortality that man needs if life is to be meaningful. Mere duration of existence does not make that existence meaningful. 
If a man in a universe could exist forever, but if there were no God, their existence would have no ultimate significance. So to illustrate, I once read a science fiction story in which an astronaut was marooned on a barren chunk of rock lost in outer space. We had, uh, he had with him two vials, one containing poison and the other a potion that would make him live forever. Realizing his predicament, he gulped down the poison. But then, to his horror, he discovered he had swallowed the wrong vial. And he had uh, uh, drunk the potion that made him immortal. And that means that he was cursed to, to exist forever, a meaningless, unending life. Now, if God does not exist, our lives are just like that. They could go on and on and still be utterly without meaning. We could ask uh, of life, so what? So it is not just immortality man needs, if life is to be uh, significant. He needs God and immortality to make life worthwhile. So, here we talk about this world, and I think there was a, there was a TV program, wasn't there? I, I never watched it, but I remember the title, something like Third Rock from the Sun, Is that uh, meaning, you know, planets are just big rocks, and uh, we're the third one, is that right, third one from the sun? And there's a bunch of others, and we just happen to live on this rock, maybe there's life on other rocks, and that's it. Not too, uh, not too significant. Well, let me read you another story. And this story actually comes from uh, early on, from 1804, from a man named William Paley. Now, Paley was a scientist. He was, he was a theologian, a, a, a preacher, actually. But in his own right, a scientist who wrote a lot of books on nature and on natural theology. And his most famous work is on natural theology. And his, his most famous illustration is this illustration about the watch. How many times have you heard that referred to by preachers or uh, creationists and so forth? Let me just begin. It's a long paragraph. I won't read it all. But let me just begin. In crossing a... Uh, a patch of woods, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how that stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had been there forever. Nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer which I had given before, that is, about the rock, that for anything I knew, the watch might have always been there. Yet, why should not this answer serve as, for the watch as well as for the stone? Why, uh, why is it not uh, as admissible in the second case as in the first? For this reason and for no other, that when we come to inspect the watch, we perceive what we could not discover in the stone, that its several parts are framed and put together for a purpose. For example, and now he has a long paragraph about this watch. I'll just start into it. That, they are, that the parts of it are so formed and adjusted to produce motion. 
and that motion, that motion so regulated as to point out the hour of the day, that if the different parts had been differently shaped from what they are, of a different size, or from what they are, or placed in any other manner or in any other order than that in which they are placed, either no motion at all would have been carried on in the machine or none which would have answered the use that is now served by it. In other words, you get the point. Now, he goes on to describe the springs and the, and the arms and everything in this watch, how it's made of this kind, the springs are made of this kind of metal and the, and the bands of this kind of metal and so forth. So I'll skip all of that long paragraph. And at the end, he says, the inference we think is inevitable, that the watch must have had a maker that there must have existed at some time and at some place or other an artificer or artificers who formed it for the purpose for which we find it actually to answer who comprehended its construction and designed its use. So here's the, the famous watch illustration by William Paley that we've been using for over 200 years now. And how does he apply this, of course? When we look at nature and we look at the world in which God made, we don't look at it like we look at a rock. We look at it like we look at a watch. It's intricate. It's developed in a certain specific way, so specific that it must have a designer. It can't be just there for no reason. Now, by the way, Paley also explains that if we knew more, we would also look at that stone and realize that stone isn't made just by accident either. It's put together in a certain way by certain elements that had to have a designer. So whether we're looking at the earth as a big chunk of rock or all the, the human life on it, all the plant life, all of these kinds of things, uh, of course, we call this a natural argument for the existence of God that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and so forth. Now, as I said, we've gone through 200 years uh, of since what we call the Enlightenment, which was anything but the Enlightenment. But 200 years ago, uh, scientists uh, were feeling their oats to such an extent that they said, we can, we can explain everything without God. You know, we can explain all of these things. We can explain where it came from. And I think no doubt in history the biggest uh, advancement in that thinking and the argument uh, was from Darwin, right? When Darwin came along with a theory, and his theory was, as we call it now, evolution, that there was natural selection, that uh, given enough time and a lot of chance, uh, that these things would work out in an evolutionary model. And so... Uh, that has been scientists' explanation. Remember I, a few weeks ago I gave the illustration of it. Before that, we, it was kind of like we lived in a box and the top of the box was open and we could look up and see God and say everything that we live in down here was made by a creator. Science, science came along, closed the box so that we're not allowed to look up anymore. We have to explain everything around us by what's around us. And so science did that for us, and uh, uh, even if you believed in God, you had to say he was totally transcendent. That is, he's up there somewhere, and we don't know anything about him, and we can't explain anything about him. 
And the theologian came along and said, yes, but we, but we have his word. We have the Bible. And so the German scientists and theologians set in to disprove the Bible, to say that we really don't have an inspired Bible. There's no such thing as inspiration. There are no such thing as miracles. There are no such thing as, as uh, you know, a Bible just from God. And so they explained away the scripture too so that we could no longer say, yes, but God said this. And by the way, folks, you and I, when, when we were young, uh, and went to school back in those years in the middle of the 20th century, we were still taught two things at least. Okay, there's the scientific explanation, but there's God. We even prayed in our schools. And once in a while we read scripture in our schools and so forth. I'm telling you, we have a generation now that uh, our government has made sure that they were not allowed to hear anything but what they wanted them to hear. And if you take God totally out of the picture and let young minds grow up with just a naturalistic view of this world, they're going to be what we have right now. And that's a sad thing. Uh, because what, what comes of that is... There may be a God, but we don't know anything about him. We can't know anything about him. The Bible carries no authority with me, uh, only what science says. And now technology, maybe, uh, in addition to that. You know, there, there was a, uh, there, there was a uh, uh, what do you call it, a, an answer to that in the next century, in the 19th century, what we call the uh, romantic period, in the romance period, and that is, okay, now the artist comes in, and now his art shows love and expression and the majesty of the world and poetry and beauty and all of this. So now we say that God is totally imminent. In other words, God is in the tree, God is in the flower. God is in nature. As a matter of fact, that's where we get mother nature. You know, that, that now rather than God being so far away we can't know him, now everything is God. And every time we see a baby born, we say, oh, that, what a miracle. And every time we see a flower open up, we say, there's God in that flower. And, and so you go from one extreme to the other. And obviously God is not totally transcendent. God is not totally imminent in everything, but he's the creator of everything, but he's a God that can be known. So the Christian reaction is what we had to come up with. And in the 20th century, from fundamentalism to evangelicalism, we basically have answered those from, from creation science that was a necessity. We had to come up with uh, our a biblical explanation of where nature came from and, and the purpose for nature. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, though he was a Roman Catholic 100 years ago, said nature is not our mother, uh, it is our sister. He meant by that, it's not that we came from nature, but we and nature came from the same creator. So we and the animals, we and the flowers, we and the earth all came from the hand of the same creator. So it's more like our sister rather than our mother. And C.S. Lewis, who I, I want to quote to you a few more times, who came from atheism into Christianity, 
said nature is more real and beautiful when you realize that she's been created. You can try to look at nature and say how beautiful it is, but without a creator, it's all there by chance. No, when you see it by the hand of a creator, it's more beautiful. Now, let me do this. Um, I have five uh, things that the Bible says about nature, okay? And let's think about these uh, a little bit. It won't be something brand new to you, uh, but it's good to think about them again. First of all, nature had a beginning, and so where do we go? Well, we go to Genesis 1. We go to John 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Interesting that that's how the Bible starts out. That's the first thing that is said. In the beginning, God, take that for granted. And what did God do? He created heaven and earth. Everything that is in heaven, everything that is in earth, which means all of the angelic beings are created beings. Uh, this earth and everything in it, every animal, every flower, every human being is created by God. So John will come along in the New Testament, John 1.1, and say it again. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And I've heard people argue about, well, did, did God the Father create or did Jesus Christ create? And we shouldn't get hung up on, on things like that. I don't think the Bible does, uh, because as I say, the, an the obvious answer to that is yes. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one theologian that I, I really like and appreciate, Dr. McCune, says that even the voice that walked with Adam in the garden was Jesus Christ incarnate. When God does something on the earth and appears to human beings, talks or appears as the angel of, of the Lord or whatever, that is the appearance of Jesus Christ on this earth. Who is God, of course? He's the one that appeared in the burning bush and said, I am that I am. And so uh, we understand that, but uh, the world has a hard, hard time with it. So the world had a beginning. Let me, um, let me now read an illustration that C.S. Lewis gave. I thought this was good. Uh, he wrote a book called God in the Dock. And when I first saw it, I thought of, I thought of a dock like when you, where you dock a boat. <laughs> God in the Dock. Well, that sounds... No, but in English law, we call it taking the stand. You know, you... Put up your hand, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Okay, take the stand. You sit in the chair, right? Well, the accused person in English courts stands in the dock. That's the place where the accused stands, and he has to stand there until he's proven innocent or guilty. So when Lewis described or wrote his book or titled his book, God in the Dock, what he meant was, We've taken man out of the dock, and we've put God on trial. We've put God in the dock, and now we're trying God as if we can stand in judgment of God. Anyway, in that book, he says this, The law of physics, I, this is C.S. Lewis writing, The law of physics, I understand, decree when one billiards ball, A, sets another billiards ball, B, in motion, the momentum lost by A exactly equals the momentum gained by B. This is a law. 
He's, he's explaining the law of nature. That is, this is the pattern to which the movement of the two billiard balls must conform, provided, of course, that something sets ball A in motion. And here comes the snag. The law won't set it in motion. Think about that for a minute. There's a law of nature, but the law of nature cannot set that law into motion. It is usually a man with a cue who does that. But a man with a cue will send us back to free will. So let us assume that it was lying on a table on an, in an ocean liner and that what set it in motion was a lurch of the ship. In that case, it was not the law which produced the movement. It was a wave. And that wave, though it certainly moved according to the laws of physics, was not moved by them. It was shoved by other waves and by winds and so forth. And however far you traced the story back, you would never find the laws of nature causing anything. The dazzling, obvious conclusion now arose, because he's talking about his own, the way he became a believer. In my mind, in the whole history of the universe, the laws of nature have never produced a single event. They are the pattern to which every event must conform, provided only that it can be induced to happen. What is he saying? There has to be an original mover. There has to be an original cause, a first cause, as we call it, to everything. So the laws that we have of nature did not start themselves in motion, did not start evolving on their own. Something had to move them in the very beginning. So that's Lewis, who was a pretty good thinker in most, in most uh, things, all right? Um, also, there's this, this other example from, from uh, William Lane Craig, where he quotes two scientists who are saying that the universe is expanding and will continue to expand forever if it could expand forever. In other words, it started like this, and the universe is actually expanding, getting larger. It's not shrinking. It's not saying the same. But in its rotation and in its movement, the earth is expanding. And what he points out is, number one, it can't do that forever. There will be an end to it. If you believe that there's no God, then you have to believe this earth is headed toward destruction, regardless of what we do with the environment, regardless of what we do with wars and the rest. The earth will, ex will expand and fall apart. But if you believe in God, you also have to believe that it had a beginning and it's going to have an end. It had to begin before it started expanding, and it's going to end before it falls apart. And scientists know that. And so what has an answer to that? Evolution doesn't, and the laws of nature don't, but God's Word does. All right, so number one, nature had a beginning. Number two, nature has a purpose. There's a reason for it. And we go to Psalm 19 and Romans 1 for these things. Psalm 19, 1 through 3 are really the whole, the whole psalm, but the heavens declare the glory of God. 
Why do we have them? Why do you look up into the starry heaven? For the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. The firmament being the, the, the atmosphere and the stars and the, and the planets, the sun and the moon. Uh, they show his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So why do we have nature? To, to bring God glory. So that you can say, what a, what a wonderful creator he is. What a beautiful thing God made. And, and you look at the seasons and you see, you know, that we need wintertime as much as we need summertime. We need spring to grow, but we need fall to harvest. And then we need to go into winter again. Uh, things that produce seeds need to produce them. And then those seeds need to, to fall off. And then they need to die. And then they need to be put in the ground again. And this whole cycle, we bow our heads every time we eat and say, thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you for the cycle that you created that produces this kind of food, and we stay alive because of what you did. Or whether it's that, or whether you just put, plant a flower in a flower box outside your window, and you watch it until that flower opens up, and that beautiful thing opens up, and you say, isn't that beautiful? And uh, the Bible even says that Solomon in all of his beauty, right, was not arrayed as one little dandelion in the field, the way God made it to open up and, and be beautiful. I don't know why my mother liked dandelions. She, I had to mow the grass. I didn't like dandelions, but she thought they were pretty. <laughs> you know, all of that yellow mixed in with the green, I guess, or something like that. But... Um, so we, we look at those things and we praise the Lord for those, those kind, that kind of beauty. And that's why it's there, so that we can praise God. So imagine, imagine creatures of God who were created by God, we human beings, made in the image of God, and no other part of creation is made in God's image. We are. We think, we look, we reason, we speak. We do all of these kinds of things, and imagine that creature then say, looking back into the face of God and saying, I don't believe in you, and I won't give you glory for anything. Imagine what an affront that is to a creator. And yet, to us, not only the beauty is there, but even when things don't seem right, when tragedy strikes us, or persecution even comes our way. Jane, or, or, uh, Peter says, we then uh, throw ourselves upon God who is the creator and say, Lord, you can do anything. You can create anything. You can heal anything. You can fix anything. And we cast ourselves upon him. So uh, creation has, has a purpose. And... Uh, uh, the, the purpose is for us to glorify God. Lewis said at one time, nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory, but nature gave the, world, uh, the word glory a meaning I could understand, and that's to glorify God. All right, thirdly, 
nature has a marred history. Uh, you, you could say a broken history. And so as we look at nature, we also understand as believers why things go bad, why things are broken often, why a tornado may have flattened your house. And you say, God, why me? You know, and, and people curse God at moments like that if there is a God and lose their faith at uh, times like this. But let me remind you of Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. Genesis 3, of course, is where Adam and Eve sin, and then God is handing out the punishment for the sin. And unto Adam he said, God said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. You and I understand that, that though God created it and though he pronounced it very good after six whole days of creation, including human beings, that when sin came in, the ground is cursed. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. So you'll go out into the garden now to till the garden like you've done up to this point, but now little beads of sweat are going to form on your forehead. Now your back is going to begin to ache a little bit as you bend over. Now you're going to uh, cut your foot on a sharp stone. Things like this are going to begin to happen. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the uh, uh, herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. I'm uh, trying to memorize Psalm 90, uh, where uh, it's a psalm of Moses, you know. O Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. But this is where he says, the, the days of, of our years are threescore and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, if you happen to make it to 80, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but then he says, even the strength of our days is still toil and sorrow. Even if your strength gives you 80 years, it will give you toil and sorrow along with them. So here's God saying, you brought sin into this world, and so the nature, the world that I created is going to be marred. It's going to be broken. And so tragedies are going to happen. There will be diseases. There will be accidents. There will be death and destruction in the animal world as well as uh, in, in the physical world. As a matter of fact, oh, let me, let me uh, go on up to Genesis 6, 11 through 13, where God now is going to flood the world. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So, so not only... You know, d does nature have a hard way about it? You and I brought it about. Our sin did it. You say, well, not mine. It was, 
It was that woman <laughs> that was given to Adam, uh, that man and that woman. No, it was us. And that's why the New Testament teaches very plainly we were in Adam, sinning when he sinned. We are a human race. And what is guilty of one is guilty of all. And what comes upon one comes upon all. And even though uh, there are some good people in this world, as we call them, and some really evil people in this world, the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. And God sends his blessings on the just and the unjust. We all are guilty, and we all uh, reap the uh, consequences and the benefits. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And you know the story of the flood, how it came about. You know, uh, also, um, in uh, William Lane Craig, in his book, was, was quoting uh, a, an oriental agnostic an Oriental writer who was looking at this world and saying, I can't figure it out. It's got good and it's got bad. And so because it's got all of these things, we have to throw our hands up and say, we don't know what happened here. Let me, if I can read this, this is kind of interesting. At evening, the gold and blood of sunset, the long-muzzled, gray-backed, golden-bellied otters of cloud, Swift gathered for a kill, a, a terrible death behind the implacable sullen hills. How cruel God who made his creatures so beautiful that they may prey upon each other. Spirit and limb and life. God who made the mantis, slim, jade, murderous, with the razor jaws, and the oriole with the liquid golden voice, and the cat and the sparrowhawk, Swift pouncing, and the bab bamboo snake, and the sea eagle, sky suspended, hair and feather and scale, claw and dart and beak, each a miracle that they may end as the sun has gone down today in terror and torn flesh and spilt blood and agony. You know, uh, only on the cartoons, and I saw a few of them this week because I had grandkids in the house. <laughs> you know, when you have grandkids, you revert back to cartoons. But, I, but I'm telling you, cartoons have changed, you know. Uh, some kind of interesting ways. You know, on the one hand, even those little cartoon characters can be, can be uh, immoral, and vulgar. And then on the other hand, these cartoons, you know, uh, uh, the porpoises and the whales and the lions and the tigers and the bears, they're all just fuzzy little animals that you live with and they live in a house and they eat dinner at the table and, you know, everything is just so wonderful. And nature, of course, is not that way. And, uh, you know, a little child like our little granddaughter pushing her in a stroller goes by a dog going the other way on a leash anyway and she wants to reach out and you know because dogs are friendly and cozy and that and I'm thinking hope that dog doesn't bite <laughs> you know she sticks her little hand out there you know uh, 
nature isn't such a wonderful place, and I'm glad I don't live in it, to tell you the truth, uh, because uh, I wouldn't be at the top. Well, maybe I'd be at the top of the food chain. Human beings are supposed to be, but it is an ugly place of death and dying and the rest. And uh, farmers who grew up that way just kind of knew that, right? You know when death has to happen. You know when uh, pain has to, has to occur. You know what you have to do to make a living. But when we live in our protected little shells, we don't always see that, and we forget how God made the real world. My point is, nature has a marred history. And, it, and when you and I look at nature, and we look at, at the brokenness of the world, whether tornadoes and hurricanes, or war and killings and murders... Uh, or whatever it is, or we just, you know, I can tell you this little story. I remember when my kids rescued a little, a little bird because the bird had broken a wing, so a little sparrow or something, I forget what it was. Anyway, went out and got it, put it in a box, brought it in the house, going to nurse this little bird back to health. Well, I could see it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be. So I'm thinking better to put this bird out and let it die somewhere on its own, then die in this box, you know, and these kids. So, so okay, I talked him into it. It's best to let the bird go. It'll be all right. You know, that's the way God made things. So we uh, get ready. We take the box out to the front yard. The kids are inside looking out the window. I put the, bir the bird out on the grass. I go back inside. And uh, in Colorado, they... <laughs> They have these black and white jaybirds that are flesh eaters. And we had no sooner gotten back inside, and here they came and pounced on that little bird right in the front yard in front of the kids. And the kids are screaming, and the birds are, oh, well, I'm thinking, that didn't work so well, did it? You know, nature took its course all right. <laughs> nature isn't always as pretty as we want it to be, but, my point is, you and I have a, an answer for it. We have an answer that's very logical and makes sense, that this is, a, this is broken from the way God created it. And God didn't create it with that kind of terror in it, but sin brought that curse upon it. Not only that, but we also know at the end, God's going to reverse that curse and bring it back more to the way it was originally, and at least for a thousand years called the millennial reign of Christ, a lot of that curse will be lifted, and we will see the lion and the lamb lie down together again, and, and it will be a, a wonderful thing. So we have an answer for the beginning and for the end of it. It makes a lot more sense that way. Now, uh, two, more, two more things here. Number four, uh, nature operates by set laws, as we have said. So God, it's not that God created things and then never touched it again, but God did create things to take place in a certain motion, controlled by themselves. So remember Genesis, for example, again, in Genesis 1, 4, and 5, God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness and called the light day and the darkness he called night. Guess what? It's still doing that. And the earth is the way he put it together with where the sun is, where the earth is, and how everything rotates, we still have morning and evening. We still have light and darkness. 
God did it that way. Uh, in verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And guess what? We still have seasons where fruit produces other seeds, and those seeds, when they're planted, produces the same thing. Still a law. Still will happen. Verse 14 and 15, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the, lay, the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And we could go on and on, of course. There are, there are laws of nature. Now, let me remind you that God then, the same one who set these laws in motion, again, the, the first cause, the one who sets them in motion, can also interrupt them. Like back to the, the uh, illustration of the, of the billiards, of the pool table, those balls will just sit there unless somebody puts one of them in motion, and then they'll knock into each other and they'll move, but somebody has to start them in motion. God started everything in motion. Well, you can if you're standing, if you're the guy with the pool stick standing over the table as the balls are rolling, you can reach in and grab one, take it off. You can stop it, right? Because you're the one that started it. So God has every right at any moment he wanted to, to reach in and change the motion, to reach in and take the ball off or to stop it. And so he did at certain times, and we call those miracles. When God did that for a specific purpose, they're not very common. God doesn't, hasn't done miracles as much as we think he has done them because we have them written about and we read them in the scripture and we read them a lot of times and the scripture's only about this long and you put all the miracles together into a volume this big, it just seems like there's a lot of them, but really over the whole period of time, there's not been that many miracles, but God had every right to step in and do what he wanted with the motion, with the laws of nature and redirect them if he wants. We call that miracle. The other thing that he does is to let us ask him to do things, and it's called prayer. And so we can ask God to rearrange the pool balls, <laughs> to rearrange the table, and God will rearrange it for our sake. That isn't necessarily a miracle. I don't call prayer miracle, but Prayer is God's sovereign way of arranging the circumstances so that he brings an answer to our prayer. Sometimes no, sometimes yes, and sometimes wait. So the, the world operates by set laws. And then lastly, number five, uh, na nature. I mean, and nature will one day be redeemed. And so one day all of this brokenness will be over. So in Second Peter and, and in Revelation, Second Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And so there will be a time when God will redo it, restart it, if you will, have a new Genesis. We will live in a new Jerusalem on a new heaven and a new earth without the sin, 
without the brokenness uh, and without the tragedy that we have now. So we're looking forward to that day. I hope, I hope you are. So at the end, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, when the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And that's our duty on this earth in which we live, to take it as it is, give God the glory, Enjoy what we can enjoy because it comes from the hand of a creator. Endure what we must endure because of our own sin and what sin brought about it. And look with hope to the future when we will dwell in that righteous place forever in a, in a creation without sin. That'll be a wonderful thing. We have the answer to it, and we need to give that answer as often as we can. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you for... our. A reminder again uh, this morning of this world in which we live, of the nature, the things that you made. And Father, we would sing praises to you and rejoice over these things day and night. And even, Father, when the tragedy comes our way because of the sinfulness of the world, because of the brokenness, because this punishment had to come, help us still to look to you, to trust in you, and even give you glory and come to you as a faithful creator. So, Father, we pray that you would, uh, in, in, as we're reminded of these things, uh, cause us to be reminded of you and your graciousness to us. We'll thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for being here this morning.